Welcome back to the Living Lands Podcast. Today is episode three, where we talk with Peter Levi, a freshwater ecosystem ecologist who works at the Burke Center at Northland. Peter has also spent time as an associate professor of environmental science and sustainability at Drake University. Peter's research focuses on how changes to lakes, streams, and reservoirs have cascading impacts on other processes within these ecosystems. He has done research on and in water from the Laurentian Great Lakes to Denmark, Alaska, and Ghana. His undergraduate degree is from Lawrence University, and his graduate degree is from the University of Notre Dame. Peter, it's it's great to have you on. I'm glad to see you again. Yeah, thanks, Sam. It's great to see you, and thanks for the invitation to contribute to the podcast. So I brought you on because you have a unique perspective that uh, a lot of people don't have, and that is the water resources, and you're, you're the water guy, and you were at Drake, and you surely are at Northland as well. And I just kind of want to talk to you about water. Why should we care about water resources and how do they play into land and how land is valued or, or conserved? So talk to me a little bit about what projects you have going on right now and maybe what you've studied over the past few years and where we're at with all of that. Yeah, fantastic, Sam. It's, it's hard to think about where to start when it comes to water. Uh, I've given a lot of talks and taught a lot of classes and done some outreach and if, if I were to start somewhere, uh, is just that water is truly essential for life, right? We are dependent on it. Our bodies are primarily water. When NASA is searching for extraterrestrial life, one of the primary things they're looking for is the presence of water uh, because all life that we know of needs water to survive. Uh, of course, there could be other... <laughs> crazy forms of life that we haven't conceived of yet that maybe don't need water. But Maybe that's for um, our next episode. Yeah, maybe the extraterrestrial bit is uh, you need some astronomer on here. But uh, so water really is essential for life. And we have water quality and water quantity issues that are imposing social uh, pressures economic pressures and ecological and environmental pressures on the systems that provide this water. So those systems are groundwater, uh, surface water, which can include lakes, streams, wetlands, rivers, and then of course the ocean as well, which is pretty salty, but uh, there's some technology that's looking to make desalinization more affordable and more energy effective. So uh, we have a lot of water on this planet, but the distribution of it, you know, where it is on the planet relative to where people are, and then the quality of it uh, is are, are some major issues that are facing society. So in before we dive into those issues, can you talk to me a little bit about how you got into water and where the passion for water resources and all of those things started? Gosh, where did I get into water? That's that's uh, maybe you've always good... been into water. A good question. I think so. You know, I'm a native Wisconsinite and we're fortunate to have water. I do know um, how I got into streams and rivers and now working back in Wisconsin, I'm, I'm working in lakes again as well. Uh, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, I didn't realize how fortunate we were to have so many lakes. You drive down a highway, you drive out into the country and it's not uncommon to drive by several lakes and then especially as you go further north in wisconsin you'll see dozens of lakes on a single drive and that was just something that i took for granted 
And, you know, once I learned more about the science and thought more about water, we're really fortunate in the upper Midwest, this part of the United States that was glaciated uh, 10,000, 15,000 years ago, the glaciers covered this area. And as they receded, um, they really impacted the landscape. And part of that was leaving behind, you know, big chunks of ice that would then melt and form kettle lakes or gouging out the landscape to form depressions that would then fill with water. So the upper Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan is a really water rich part of our country, largely because of the, the landscape dynamics that have formed um, the lakes here. So as I was finishing up my undergraduate degree, I realized how sort of geographically specific lakes are. They are only in these parts of the world where there were glaciers um, or other processes have occurred. Like um, for instance, in East Africa, there's some tectonic lakes because of the East African rift that are two continental plates pulling apart, creating depressions there. And those are some amazing great lakes in East Africa, but I digress. Uh, there aren't very many places where lakes are as abundant as, as the upper Midwest. And so I realized uh, pretty early on that if I wanted to study water anywhere, I should study streams and rivers because anytime you're on the landscape, you're in a watershed. So that really got me thinking about how the land around water bodies can impact it. Uh, thinking about the watershed approach and knowing then that I could do research anywhere, as you described in my introduction. I've done research in some pretty um, far-fetched places and have been fortunate to, to travel as part of my research. Um, there are rivers and streams everywhere around the world, though lakes are more limited in their distribution. Sure. Uh, so you actually wrote and contributed to a paper talking about the ecosystem responses to channel restoration. And I read, well, I attempted to read this paper. It's somewhat hard to find online, um, but I was able to find uh, some previews of it. And from the abstract, it looks like you guys looked at different streams and le levels of streams, and then what restoration efforts were done to those. And then you kind of tried to figure out where the you know, golden area is to restoring streams to make the largest impact on the watershed. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We were looking at stream restorations in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So these were all tributaries to Lake Michigan. And we were interested in trying to inform management decisions with ecological science. So Restoration ecology is a big field right now. There are millions, if not billions of dollars being poured into the, the business, I would say, of restoration, right? And so human land use, whether that's urban land use or agricultural land use has changed the quality and quantity of, of water on the landscape. And so there are efforts to undo some of that impact by trying to restore more natural systems. So in Milwaukee, a lot of streams were channelized into concrete channels um, about 50 years ago. And the idea was that that would prevent localized flooding by shunting the water off of the landscape quicker um, and get it downstream into the lake 
as fast as possible. But in effect, it had the, the opposite impact in that it caused more flooding because water was moving so quickly and these banks would, uh, these concrete channels would overfill flooding the, uh, the neighborhoods around the river. And there was also loss of life associated with these channels because the water was moving so fast uh, and they were pretty deep if, if there was a spring rain or spring snowmelt. Um, and so these were, these concrete channels became public safety hazards. And of course, were not natural by any means, right? Uh, just having a, a river that was once free flowing and then slowly constricted as people developed the area to then put it lined in concrete was not natural at all. So there were a lot of efforts being done in the Milwaukee area to undo that. Um, and so they were restoring streams into more sinuous uh, natural channels and then planting riparian vegetation or you know plants on the side of the stream that were native plants to the region. The idea there being that those roots of the plants would hold onto the soil um, and then put in, you know, different types of rocks, um, small, uh, everything from sand to pebbles, to gravel, to boulders, to try to just make it a more uh, varied stream bottom, much as natural streams are. So in our last episode on the podcast, we talked about native plants and how native plants have something called a C value, which is basically a conservatism value, kind of indicates rarity and quality of the plant to some level. Um, it's a bit categorical and vague at the moment, but it's being researched and expanded upon. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about restoring native plants to the stream bank, are there specific plants uh, that are that we need to be looking at restoring more of on the stream banks, or is it just any plant that's native that has deep roots? You know, where do you make that line? And I know you're a water guy, but obviously there are water, there are mm -hmm. aquatic plants and those play a huge role in freshwater ecosystems. So talk to me a little bit about that. I think what we found from our research regarding, I, I can speak more to like the connection between that, the, the, ecosystem on the stream banks and the stream ecosystem itself. And um, some of our recent work in Iowa that I hope to publish soon as well, demonstrates that streams with more closed canopy, so trees that are shading the stream, lead to healthier streams when assessed, um, when stream health is assessed as how much productivity or algal growth there is within the stream. So as you can imagine, in agricultural areas or urban areas, often these streams are getting a lot more sunlight um, if there aren't trees in the stream banks. And so I found in, in some Iowa work that simply having a forest, what they sometimes refer to as a gallery forest, gallery being that it's along the stream. So also referred to as the riparian area along the stream, um, that by having a forest there provides enough shade to limit the algal growth within the stream and therefore create a more healthy ecosystem. Gotcha. So too much algae is not good for streams, right? It's rare that you would see a natural stream with, you know, that's green on the entire stream bottom um, and long 
uh, hair-like algae growing on the rocks. That's not natural, unhealthy, but it's something that we see pretty commonly in areas that have been disturbed by humans. So I'll speak yeah. to that a little bit. Uh, in my backyard, actually, I have a type one stream. It's within a mile of the start, basically, of classifying it as a stream. And mm -hmm. uh, I did a little post on this on Instagram about a year ago, two years ago now, actually, um, where I basically looked at the whole map for the stream. And we're at the very top, goes all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, but through its connections, 1,800 or so miles of total stream. And I'm at the very top, and right now it's green, and it's full of algae, and has virtually no no flow. So when you think of what your research kind of showed you, and then you see something like this, like it has a little bit of a forest, you know, along the riparian zone, but it's not fully closed canopy. It's a lot of algae growth. It's really low flow. There's a beaver mm -hmm. upstream. Um, so there's certainly some things leading to it, uh, you know, can, being that way kind of talk me through your initial thought process of like, all right, this is the situation. Here's how we're going to assess or evaluate the next steps. Because I'm very curious about hearing from a freshwater ecologist instead of just like a generic engineer or, or habitat manager like myself who may have a different perspective on it. Yeah, great question, Sam. Um, so I, I thought of a few things. So I just made some notes there. Um, for one, you bring up the, the watershed concept again. So the way that I like to think about a watershed is if you think about a bathtub, right? You turn that shower on and water might spray all over the bottom of the bathtub. And that bathtub you can think about as a landscape. And all that water goes to one location and that's the drain. And so on uh, a natural landscape, those drains are, as you said, those headwater streams, those first order streams that then connect to other larger streams. So I sometimes use you know, my hand or something too to demonstrate how if you have smaller streams, they all come together into a larger stream and then a larger stream still as they flow um, downhill uh, via gravity. So you mentioned that your headwater stream is full of algae um, and the, the results of our paper from 2020 demonstrated that where we saw the most impact of restoration was in those small streams. And as you went down the watershed, there was less difference between the restored stream and a concrete channel. At every location in that study, we had six locations, there was an upstream, downstream, restored channel and concrete channel. So we could do some direct comparisons. So you, you hit on a really good point that the, the best place to really work on streams for broader water quality and water quantity improvement would be those headwaters. There are, even though headwaters are small, you know, you can probably jump across yours. Yep. Maybe. <laughs> um, they're small, um, but in a watershed, they make up the majority of stream miles. The majority of distance are these headwater streams. So if you think you brought up the Mississippi River, um, the Mississippi River is huge. It's the fourth largest river in the world. Um, it, uh, it includes parts or all of 32 states and two Canadian provinces. So it's a really big watershed. But if you want to think about water quality in the Mississippi, you really got to start working back up into the watershed, into these smaller streams. And 
the most miles, as I just said, of, of any stream size in the Mississippi River watershed would be those small streams like the one in your backyard. The reason that those are likely the best place to start <clears throat> is that you can manage them a little more easily, right? You can plant trees along the side. That's going to have a near immediate impact on that algae. Um, streams are receiving inputs from the landscape all the time, right? They're, they're intimately connected with the lands around them. Another reason I find them fascinating to study. And because of that, it might not just be the amount of shade that a stream has alone that dictates how much algae is there, right? So another big input that could influence the amount of algae would be how much nutrients does the stream receive, either nitrogen or phosphorus, the same things we use to fertilize the landscape, whether it's your garden, your lawn, or at the agricultural scale, you know, industrial fertilizer use. Um, those same things that help plants grow on the land also help algae grow in the water. So um, you can have a stream that's fully covered with trees, but there still might be algae if there's a lot of nutrients, right? So it's always, as with anything in environmental science, it's multifaceted, um, but there's usually a main driver, right? Is it the amount of sun that the, the stream is receiving? Is it the amount of nutrients? And if you can start to pull one lever, you can see how the stream responds. So one problem, and you know, I'm kind of using this stream in my backyard as like a case study for how restoration efforts can be done and the different impacts that certain steps of restoration efforts could have on the stream. And one thing mm -hmm. I found is I have a pretty significant population of invasive species like hedge apple and pear um, that kind of follow along the stream channel. And so, you know, the restorationist in me wants to remove the invasive species, but is it possible that the shade and the, the stream bank stabilization that the roots, roots of these invasive species are providing is potentially more valuable than the invasive species removal? Or could I do, should I focus on other things in between that invasive species removal until you know, that becomes the next step? I'm just very curious on how you, yeah. would, uh, how you would address that process. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and thinking about what, you know, what is the best thing to have along your stream bank? And I know on the one hand, you're right that any tree or shrub or plant, whether invasive or not, is going to provide some soil retention, right? The root system will hold onto the soil. So if you do get a rain storm or higher flow through your stream, even if the water goes above the banks, uh, your banks would likely be more stable thanks to that vegetation. The downside of some invasive species when along a stream bank is in areas where water is, where, where drought is just a common part of a 12 month cycle, right? So I know in Kansas and places, you know, kind of in the, the Great Plains of the United States, not areas as water rich as the upper Midwest, um, and so that's primarily groundwater and then some rain, though not as much rain as here in the upper Midwest as well. Um, and so some invasive plants are not adapted to an area with less water like the Great Plains. And so therefore, if they're growing along a stream, they're actually going to be pumping water out of the stream 
through their biological processes, right? So all plants need water uh, to photosynthesize. And so this, this problem is especially acute in the Southwest, in the US Southwest in the high desert. There are invasive species that are growing along some of those streams and they are pumping the water out of the streams and then plants all transpire um, through the process of photosynthesis. They're losing water vapor through their leaves um, as they take in carbon dioxide uh, for photosynthesis, water could be lost. And so this creates a real problem in areas that water isn't quite as, um, you know, as bountiful as here, that if you have an invasive species that needs a lot of water, but you're in a drier area, they're going to dry up your stream. So I can't speak specifically to the trees you mentioned, um, but if you're noticing low to no flow, I'd be really curious, uh, you know, cause it is springtime. Streams are typically flowing in the spring. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious how much water um, those trees are pulling out of the stream bank. Um, and therefore the stream could be losing water into the stream bank and then the trees are pulling the water up through the soil. So I'm really glad you bring that up actually, because I, I didn't know in some certain circumstances that they would actually have that significant of, a, of an effect. I've been talking to my wife about it and I thought last year and even the year before that the stream flow was a bit higher at, uh, this time of year. And, and we've and I've felt like we've had a little bit more precipitation so far this year than we did in the past couple of years, besides just some occasional torrential downpours. Um, so yeah. that could potentially be playing a role into it. I didn't didn't know uh, that 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 some plants could do that. So that would be an interesting study to see, you know, what the average flows are before and then average flows are after maybe the removal of those species just to kind of yeah. get a sense for it. And obviously, you know, one, one location along the stream can't do it all, but at least it provides some context or some contribution to a understanding. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. um, with your research that you did on this paper, were there specific restoration efforts that you found to be more impactful or, uh, to have a higher return on the quality for the stream than others? Yeah, I, I measured a few, uh, quite a few different metrics. Uh, some of them were physical metrics, you know, how, how long does water stay in the reach? So we think about that, we, we refer to that as residence time, right? How long is the water within the stream reach? So uh, as you can imagine in a concrete channel, the water is just moving straight through. So it has very little residence time. Whereas when they created these natural stream restorations, again, they made sure the streams were sinuous um, and they had a variety of, of rocks and rock types in the stream bottom. And so that created eddies. Um, it created backwater pools. Um, it created some riffle points, but then again, another pool there. And so these are all areas of short-term storage in the stream. Uh, Sometimes you can see large wood in a stream causing, you know, backwater and swirling and, and holding that water in the stream reach for a little bit longer. And so we found the most drastic difference in that physical aspect um, with more retention time, water spending more time in the restored reach than the concrete channel. We also measured some different chemical aspects. And when I say chemical, 
Um, you know, think of the periodic table, all of those elements are chemicals. Um, and so we were looking at some nutrients that I've already mentioned before, uh, phosphorus and nitrogen in particular. And we were curious, are one of these two stream reaches processing these nutrients more efficiently, concrete channel or the restored channel? And we found that it just depended on the nutrient. So again, as I said, streams are often multifaceted when it comes to trying to pinpoint what's, what's going on in them. So um, phosphorus and nitrogen both uh, had a shorter, I'm trying to think of how to explain the, the concept of spiraling length. <laughs> so if you think of an uh, individual nutrient molecule going downstream, how far does it go downstream before something takes it out of the water, whether that's algae or maybe bacteria? And we refer to that as the spiraling length. How do you how, measure how, that? Um, so we drip in nutrients. We actually elevate the nutrients in the stream, but just a little bit above background. So you, you put in nutrients um, and then you measure uh, the decline in that nutrient concentration downstream. So that's demonstrating that those nutrients are being taken up. Wow. Um, yeah, so uh, it's really fun, sort of gets at the dynamics of the stream, right? Instead of just going and measuring like, oh, what's the algae today? Um, this is a dynamic that takes time into consideration. So how far, how long do these nutrients uh, stay in the water? How many nutrients are taken up per area of the stream bottom? Um, but we found kind of mixed results there because the concrete channels actually took up quite a few nutrients because they were blanketed in algae. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, so those algae were taking up a lot of nutrients just for their own growth. Um, and so, you know, th this again kind of gets at this thorny issue when it comes to restoration. And, and you sort of alluded to this in your question, what are we restoring for? Are you restoring for a more natural hydrology? You want the, the, water dynamics to be more natural, um, well, then the restorations worked. Are you doing this restoration for sort of nutrient management, right? There's a lot of efforts, especially in more agricultural areas where there's a lot of nutrients to try to limit the amount of nutrients flowing downstream. And in that case, you know, algae are good. Algae take nutrients out of the water but then if we keep going down the steps of, you know, what an ecosystem includes, you eventually get to fish. Fish are something a lot of people enjoy, especially, I mean, even just as a, uh, you know, even just to see fish in a stream is pretty awesome. And then other people like to angle for them and eat them. Um, if there's a stream that's blanketed in algae, it might be taking up a lot of nutrients, but that species of algae, that really hairy filamentous algae is not, going to pass energy up the food web um, because there's nothing that will eat that. No macroinvertebrates or stream bugs that would eat this really hairy algae to then provide enough bugs to feed the fish. So if you want to try to restore a stream for fish, then you've really got to put, uh, you've really got to think about the habitat that's there. You know, do you have pools and riffles? Do you have large wood where the smaller you know, younger fish can hide and not be eaten by the larger fish. Um, so it, it's pretty complex uh, and it always depends on, you know, what the end goal of the work is. So I'm actually incredibly excited that you brought that up specifically. The fish? Habitat. Yeah. Well, you know, I yeah. love fishing, um, but 
just in general because uh, I was going to follow up asking about invertebrates and aquatic mm. organisms and are they an indicator of habitat quality or stream quality and then furthermore should we be looking at the substrate of a stream and oh well this stream doesn't have any plants for the wildlife that we would like to see there so that's another layer of the restoration that we're missing yeah uh macroinvertebrates are really great indicators of stream health there are certain species and in fact certain families of macroinvertebrates that can do really well in poor water quality conditions and so if you take a sample um, or you notice that a stream has pretty low diversity dominated by things like flies like dipterins is the family of, of flies um, that might indicate that the water quality is not very good because those th that particular family of bugs can really withstand a wide range of water quality but if you see other things like stoneflies, mayflies, dragonflies, the larvae that is, right? The larvae that live in, um, in the stream. If you're seeing those, then that, th those families of, of aquatic bugs are usually indicating better water quality. Uh, they all breed through gills. Um, and so they need a certain amount of oxygen. They need a certain temperature. Uh, and also they need a certain temperature range, right? Oftentimes urban streams can get really warm during the day and really cold at night, just depending on you know how sunny it is or what the air temperature is. So oftentimes there's a lot of variability in water temperature in urban streams, or it might just be on the hot end, especially in the warmer summer months. Um, and, and these more sensitive bug species would not survive that. So invertebrates macroinvertebrates as we refer to them the stream bugs are really uh, good indicators of stream health and especially if you're noticing a diverse collection or if you're noticing a you know predominance of just one or two types of invertebrate then that might indicate poor health are there any steps that you would take like all right i showed up to a stream restoration site never been here before no prior knowledge you know what are the first things you're looking for to kind of get an eye, you know, an eye test of the quality or, or the restoration potential for a site? I think if I were to look around, I would try to see, um, look to see where the water level has been during a recent flood, right? So you might see sort of like a tide line on the beach, um, along a coastal, you know, along the ocean or something, you would see how far did the seaweed get pushed up? Um, you know, I'd look around to see how far has trash gone up, you know, is this, uh, or sticks, logs, you know, can you, can you see where the flood waters have gone? Um, and then I would think about, you know, you could see if the banks are eroding are the banks sloughing? You know, are they just kind of breaking off down into the stream? Um, is there vegetation along the stream to hold it as we talked about earlier? Um, what's the sediment look like on the bottom yet, right? Or do you have a variety? Do you have sand, maybe some mucky, muddy spots, but then also some pebbles and gravel? Um, that demonstrates that there's a variety of habitats 
especially when we're thinking at the level of the bugs, right? Uh, if if a if a stream is entirely sand, or if a stream is full of just fine sediment muck, that is not going to be able to support a very diverse um, community of organisms. We refer to that as stream armoring. Um, when too much fine sediment gets in and kind of plugs all the holes in the gravel and the rocks, it becomes armored, right? It's it's impenetrable because all that soil is now stuck in the stream bottom. So um, those would be some quick things I'd look for, right? Is how, think about the physical template of the stream, right? So if you're just to go and observe without trying to collect any bugs or fish, is this stream diverse in terms of its physical um, aspects or is it kind of one in the same, just like a straight shot channel, all sand, nothing on the stream banks, you know, that would be one extreme versus a, a, a channel that has a little bit of meandering, some pool riffle sequences, that's usually a natural, that will indicate that the stream's pretty natural if there's a sequence of pools and riffles going downstream. How high has it flooded? Yeah. So there are some government programs that are trying to incentivize people to do restorations along streams. In Missouri, we have, you know, uh, stream bank stabilization uh, projects for really eroded locations. They've also got um, cost share programs for field borders, which um, mm. is great for upland bird habitat and things like that. But we also know that field borders contribute a filtering effect. Do you think that those programs are moving in the right direction? And if we incorporated those programs more widely, do you think we would see a significant uh, positive results, or do you think there's still a long ways to go in regards to our understanding of what works and what doesn't? Great question. Um, first, I just recalled too, since you mentioned the, the federal programs, there is a rapid habitat assessment that a lot of state governments like the DNRs of various states use to rapidly assess the habitat of a stream. And it's, it's basically a checklist and what does this look like? And you can get a score. So so I would use that too if I showed up to a stream to to think about what it's happening. Is that publicly like. available? It should be, yeah. I okay. could I could find that link for you. And yeah, and I would love to put it in the description of the video. So if we find that, um, I'll throw that out there so other people could take a look yeah. at it and use it. Yeah, that's great. So your question was about these programs by state or federal government agencies to try to get more people to uh, to restore or improve their stream habitat it makes it more accessible but the question uh, i i guess the question i have is like regard you know put accessibility to the side for a second and just to you know do these programs are they in the right direction uh, do, does what they actually support field borders and and some of these stabilization projects are those what we need or are there other things that maybe are under researched that you're kind of working on because I know you guys at Northland mm. you're you know your freshwater innovation center so you guys are looking at yeah. the new you know the new stuff in freshwater um, so I'm curious like are we looking at what what it is and this is what we got to do or are there things we need to evaluate going forward on changing our, our thought process. I think if, if you're talking about a thought process, so I couldn't speak to the program specifically, sure. um, but based on your description, if we get people doing things around their stream reaches, 
is that the direction we should go, right? And I think we often take, again, take for granted our water resources, right? As I said at the top about growing up in Wisconsin with all these lakes, you take that for granted. And I think that some people, you know, yourself included as a landowner, you've, you've got a water resource on your property, right? Um, and I think that if these programs incentivize people to acknowledge and recognize streams, rivers, ponds, lakes, wetlands that uh, might be adjacent to or on property that they own, I think that that's a big win, right? To start to understand these systems and especially as, as we've talked about a few times now, just understand the interconnectedness, right? That the actions you take on your uh, property are going to impact properties downstream, whether that's in a good way or maybe a negative way. Um, and so I think that any program that gets people to just think about their streams, rivers, lakes, ponds, wetlands a little bit more and understand those interconnectedness, even if it's a, you know, a wetland you might think is disconnected from people downstream, right? There is no downstream with a wetland, but, um, if people are more attuned to all of the services that wetland provides, right? Like I would wonder if the people haven't, you know, done something as simple as surveyed the birds that visit on a 12 month cycle, they might be astonished to note how many different species come to the wetland uh, because those are really important habitats for, uh, you know, for food and energy for birds and other organisms. So um, I think any program that gets people a more, you know, more connected to the freshwater resources in, in their um, either in, in their direct neighborhood, like on their property, but also just in their city or in their watershed, right? Just to start to understand this interconnectedness. I think that would be a win. Um, and that's, I, I think that's part of the issue, right? Everyone feels like, oh, that little thing that I can jump across in my yard, that little stream doesn't matter what I do here, right? There's, there's some places in Iowa where you can see cows, you know, cooling off in these small streams in the summer. Um, and then of course, there's a lot of fecal matter that would go downstream from those cows in the streams in the summer. Um, and that impacts the communities downstream, right? Uh, so yeah. So okay. that's my, that's my sort of more general response to, you know, would a government program that gets people to, to act on their, any water bodies that they may own or be a part of, would that, would that be beneficial? And I think it would. Um, so does it take much? I mean, does it take, you know, we got to do all nine of these checklist items to restore the stream bank to make a significant impact? Or can we see um, small steps and not even that many of them uh, to actually improve the stream? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and again, depends on what you're measuring as the response. Are you trying to bring back trout? Well, then you might need nine things to get the water just right. But of course, trout need cold water. So it needs to be a cold water stream to begin with, right? Um, so what is the goal that you're trying to accomplish, right? Are you trying to reduce the flooding or in your you know yard? Are you trying to stabilize the stream banks? There are there are certain things that can definitely get you to check that box, right? Like, yes, we stabilize their stream banks. That would benefit people downstream because then they're not getting all this 
soil going downstream that can, as I said, lead to armoring of the stream bed, you know, causing less habitat for aquatic bugs. So um, I think that there are certain individual steps that can be done. I think that uh, a larger um, sort of portfolio of things might be necessary in some cases. Um, case in point there is we're doing some work in uh, Polk County, Iowa, which is where Des Moines is. And one of my colleagues was able to get several landowners on the same page and pay for a mile and a half of stream to get all saturated buffers installed. So in central Iowa, there's a lot of tile drainage. Tile drainage are um, pipes that are placed underground um, under the field to lower the water table so that crops like corn can grow. Um, and these pipes, essentially they're perforated. So as water, as a water table creeps up or as rain percolates down, they hit these pipes and then get off the landscape pretty quickly into, into streams. The way to uh, make that process a little bit longer so water isn't just going directly into the stream from the field is to cut that pipe off, even just maybe eight feet short of the stream and let that water run through the buffer or the stream bank. You know, don't leave eight feet between the field and the stream of just grasses. And if the pipe stops there, it's gonna take that water a long time to go through the bank and the, the soil, right? At this microscopic scale um, versus just having eight more feet of pipe that the water can shoot through. So my colleague was able to get all those pipes on a mile and a half of stream replaced with saturated buffers. There were 26, 26 tile outlets in just a mile and a half to give you an idea of the scope of this. Um, they replaced all of them with saturated buffers and saw next to no improvement in the amount of nitrogen that was flowing through the stream. Wow. So you got to that do was, a lot. That was for a couple different reasons, you know, so again, nothing is, exactly straightforward in, in dealing with streams. But um, part of it was that it was just a really wet spring. And so the farmers don't want their fields flooded. That's the whole purpose behind tile drainage. And so some of the stop logs, um, you, you have a stop log to, to have that water hit the stop log and then saturate the buffer. Um, the stop logs were lowered so that water during the high flow can get out. Um, and that's really the period when a lot of the nitrates moving. So these projects can work, but as we're finding in this project, they work 10 and a half months a year. Hmm. But then there's those six weeks, month and a half a year where you can't flood your field. So you've got to let the water go, but that's also coincides with the time when the most nitrogen is going with it. So Does the 10 months outweigh the six weeks or do we no. find, no, okay. No. no. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... it also becomes more expensive to treat the water, you know, when we see these excess nutrients. So not only is it just like, oh, we're helping the habitat, but it's also like taxpayers are paying for their water to be treated downstream somewhere. And mm -hmm. most likely in, in most watersheds, eventually somebody pulls the water out for some public use or something like that. And you know, that ultimately increases the cost of that service, doesn't it? 
Absolutely. Yep. And it's just, um, you know, that the cost of water quality is paid for by somebody, right? And this gets into the whole environmental economics of uh, externalities, right? What are the external costs that aren't considered in the items we purchase or pay for on a daily basis? And one of those is, yeah, clean air, clean water. So yeah. what are some of the, what, in your opinion, what are some of the largest issues facing fresh, freshwater conservation right now? And has what we've talked about covered a little bit of that or are there problems that we haven't even touched on that are even bigger and even more insurmountable? Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot about water quantity and quality. Um, and so I think, uh, about, you know, this past winter, California and other States out West, just were slammed with so many storms and so much precipitation, right? There's these atmospheric rivers, they refer to them. So thinking about, you know, thinking about the water cycle, one step in the water cycle is water vapor being in the atmosphere. And in recent years, um, this phenomenon has been uh, growing stronger of these uh, high water vapor dense streams of air flowing east from the Pacific towards the, the West Coast. Uh, and, and these have been referred to as atmospheric rivers. So um, there are meteorologists who are trying to get better at predicting when these are going to come and, you know, what are the conditions that need to set up over the Pacific that cause these. Uh, so that's really fascinating. Um, and we're seeing just an amazing amount of water quantity in an area that's, you know, undergone 20 plus years of drought. Um, so the one thing that I think of sometimes is that thanks to the water cycle, we have more water being renewed by evaporation, condensation, and precipitation every year than what the entire human population uses on an annual basis. Of course, um, that's really important because we still want water to be in our rivers and streams and lakes, right? So it's, it's good that we're using less. Um, but one of the major issues that, that is becoming more acute in our society is that the distribution of that water is not evenly distributed as to where humans live, right? <laughs> right? And so I think that that... Um, is going to become more of an issue, right? Here I am on the shores of Lake Superior, the biggest freshwater lake in the world, and it's very low population density in all the surrounding counties around this entire huge lake, right? Um, so Duluth, Minnesota is the biggest city, maybe Thunder Bay, Ontario, but it, it's just a very sparsely populated area, whereas then there are you know, some mega cities and the U.S. Southwest, um, also in parts of the, the Middle East uh, and other places where water is just less available. And so I see that as, you know, one of these major issues is water distribution. Um, are we going to start to recycle water? Um, you know, oftentimes uh, the, the, the stat, if you remember it from class a couple years ago, Sam, um, what, what just floors me is that here in the U.S., we're, we're spending so much on water treatment, right, which you already said has an associated economic cost. 
and the amount of water that is treated to drinking water quality but is actually consumed is only one to three percent of that water so 97 to 99 percent of the water that we could drink because it's been treated to be drinking water quality we use for our laundry we use for our toilets we use for our showers our sinks our garden hoses washing our cars industry within our country you know um, we are using such high quality water and then there's other countries where you shouldn't drink what comes out of the tap right whereas we can drink what we're putting fires out with <laughs> so um in general uh so so that's something that really you know always when i think of that it, it drives me a little crazy and i try to really i have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and when they're leaving that faucet running while they're washing their hands or something <laughs> just like turn off the faucet in between uses you know but um well, yeah. that raises another question. Does the personal use component, like on an individual basis, matter more? Or are there other facets going into this whole thing, like companies, pollution, mm -hmm. things like that? Um, kind of walk me through your philosophy on the individual use versus large scale. Yeah, I think, you know, I think with all environmental things even going beyond water you know recycling and you know trying to drive less walk or bike more you know all of these all of these individual choices we make do matter um the things that would create more change would be uh i think and have discussed this with others too um you know thinking about more systemic change in our culture right so we as we as individuals have a lot of purchasing power and as consumers of goods and services can sway larger entities like corporations or industry right and so i think that's where we can make a even more meaningful impact right so we can all do better um, on water use for instance or fossil fuel use but um where we can make the largest impact and where I think we need to make the largest impact to see bigger change is, is sort of the collective, um, you know, collective action as consumers, right? What, what are the products we're purchasing? People often ask me like, Oh, is bottled, is bottled water safe? Can you drink bottled water? And I just think like, why do you want to pay for that cheap plastic bottle? Cause you know, you're paying for it. Um, and, and whatever company you're buying that from is already making profits hand over fist because the water they're getting is, um, is really cheap. Um, and oftentimes, in some cases, some of those bottled water companies are just using municipal water and they're bottling it themselves and selling it. So imagine, you know, just starting your own little outfit and buying a bunch of plastic bottles and filling them at your tap, right? That is, that is what some companies do. So buy a buy a reusable water bottle don't consume that plastic don't be part of the chain that you know the fossil fuel chain that that water is bottled somewhere and it's trucked somewhere else and then there's distribution centers and it's trucked from there um when the water coming out of your tap is is very likely safe to drink you know we still have some issues in our country um especially around social justice um where there are some communities that are often disproportionately 
um, uh, black or Latino or lower income, um, that uh, water quality is not as uh, is not as good as it should be, and is in other surrounding municipalities. You know, the example that comes to mind is Flint, Michigan, um, East Palestine, Ohio, just is going through a lot right now. Um, with the train derailment that happened in February, right? That was a major environmental catastrophe right. that affected the water. Um, and that community is, is lower on the socioeconomic scale. Um, and so I was, I was glad to see that they did get attention, but that attention came a little bit late, right? Um, so uh, yeah, so it's a, a long way to say, you know, I think we have some direct impacts we can make. Um, and it is important to make those, but I think we even have more power as consumers, right? Yeah. Um, and just word of mouth, right? Do you think water is like the biggest, I mean, you're obviously biased because you're a freshwater ecologist, <laughs> but you know, there's energy, there's water, there's land use and agriculture. Um, do you think water is kind of like the principal resource that we can look at and go, once we can serve water, it trickles down to a lot of these other things. Yeah, you bring up a great, um, I mean, you hit on what I would say is the food, energy, water nexus, right? We talk a lot about, about that because they're also interrelated, right? If you think of like a sphere of food, that's gonna overlap with energy. It's gonna overlap with water. And similarly, water and energy overlap as well. And so it's really important when we think about those different aspects to, to realize how interconnected they are. Um, when it comes to water, for instance, one of the things that I always enjoy both in class, but also in outreach that I've done is, you know, I, I bring a, a bag of oranges that, you know, I consume at home. Um, and sometimes I'll pass them out to the group. Uh, and as people are eating them, you know, I ask what they think of the, the sensations with the orange. And of course, one of the most frequent sensations with oranges is that they're juicy, right? You're getting the, the juice from them. And that juice, of course, is water. And where did the water come from? Well, you've got to look at the bag. Most of our citrus is from California, um, some from Florida. And so therefore, just by consuming an orange, you are consuming water from a totally different watershed, hundreds, if not thousands of miles from where you live. Um, and so this concept is known as virtual water, right? There, there's water inside so many of our goods and services, including like all of the mining that goes into cell phones and the rare earth elements in there. Um, and so there's, there's sort of a cost of water for everything that we consume. The most obvious is our food, right? Um, and of those, the more obvious ones are like oranges or things, but even coffee, um, you know, coffee is a pretty water intensive plant. Um, and so that, and then the whole production process and roasting of coffee uses water. So food, energy, and water is all really closely connected. And I think, um, you know, making informed consumer decisions is important. And, and that can, you know, I, 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 it'd be hard for me to say which one's, you know, more important than the others. Um, I would say that, you know, if you think about um, the rule of three is, you know, you can survive only about three minutes without breathing uh, and you can only survive about three days without drinking, but you could go three weeks or so without eating. Not that I recommend any of those, um, 
but that would suggest that I guess air is most important and water is a close second, right? You know, sure. we really do need to be consuming water just for our own health um, and, and metabolism of our bodies. Um, yeah. Well, one thing I think about, you know, in general ecology, we talk about trophic cascades and how if one, uh, for example, if one species goes extinct and that species is critical to an ecosystem, um, mm -hmm. it could collapse. And mm -hmm. so I, when you were talking about that, I kind of thought about water in the same way. Like water has a cascading effect and the water quality or the water dynamics has a cascading mm -hmm. effect on everything, not only downstream, but around the stream as well. When you think of the Sahara desert, the typical image of water is a bunch of lions and um, elephants and everything gathering around the watering pool and everybody's there and everybody's cool because they know that it's the only water they've got <laughs> but you know extrapolate that to the midwest where we have actually an abundance of water relatively speaking and maybe we take that for granted like you said earlier but we don't consider the cascading effects that that water quality quantity and um, things like that play into the surrounding ecosystems or communities as well yeah yeah, I think another thing we really take for granted is just turning on the tap and taking a swig of what comes out, right? Yeah, absolutely. I do think about that a lot. We've certainly taken advantage of that resource and um, done some amazing things. But, you know, as someone who's also been to a small country in Africa, just like you have in Ghana, mm -hmm. you, you they use a lot of reusable glass bottles out there on the I don't know if they have the same thing in Ghana, but when I went to Rwanda, they had that where everybody uses Fanta, old Fanta and Coke bottles and they take them to recycling centers and disinfect them. And although that doesn't directly matter in regards to like water conservation, it's an interesting thing where like even these smaller developing countries um, that don't even have like water abundance are still doing mm -hmm. these things that we look at each other like this is common sense, but we can't figure out a way to make it stick here. Yeah. Yeah. But bottled water will always sort of um, confuse me, <laughs> you know, why people would drink bottled water. I mean, it's, it's kind of personal preference, but really, you know, what you get out of the tap is the same quality in most every case. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what projects are you working on right now? Uh, you know, in 2020, you published the, um, research from Madison. I know you're working on publishing the research from Iowa uh, and the mm -hmm. Four Mile, was it Four Mile Creek that you're talking about? Yep. Four Mile Creek and Walnut Creek. Yep. 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 So now that you're kind of in the publishing process of that, are you uh, working on data collection and anything like that for a project that's going to come out in a couple years? Yeah, I, I hope to, um, I'm just getting my feet on the ground here. I've been here in Northern Wisconsin at the Burke Center for about a year and the project that we're kicking off in the next few weeks, in fact, is getting some real-time uh, sensors on buoys in a couple lakes that are at the very edge of the Mississippi River watershed, which is pretty exciting. Um, and so what we're going to do is put buoys out in three different lakes. And on each buoy, we're going to have about ten thousand dollars worth of equipment or so um hope well actually fourteen thousand now that i think about it um so fourteen thousand dollars of equipment on these three buoys um people whether they're members of the lake association 
Lake Association of the Lake they're on, or even you down in Missouri, um, could look at these data in real time to see what is the lake, uh, what are the conditions of the lake right now. Um, and, and that's really exciting because I'm, I'm, as with the work in Iowa, I'm excited to be doing work in a human landscape, right? I mean, there are people everywhere. Some ecologists, I think, are still, um, you know, really want to study what are the dynamics of natural ecosystems. But to me, humans have had an impact everywhere, right? So rather than focus on sort of natural dynamics of pristine ecosystems, what are the dynamics of the ecosystems that we are in? Um, you know, we, we saw during the COVID lockdown that so many more people started recreating outside, which is great. But one of the ideas that came from that was, are we loving our natural places to death, right? A lot of national parks, state parks, they were just overrun with people. It's great that people are out there, but sometimes too many people can damage those ecosystems or some irresponsible people aren't going to you know, treat those natural ecosystems with respect, sort of the leave no trace, they're leaving a lot of trace. Um, and so that's something I'd like to think about up here as well, is there's a couple streams and rivers where there's a lot of um, uh, tubing and canoeing. Uh, so, so those are sort of the two projects I'm thinking about, um, both getting these buoys out in three different lakes to, to just start conversations with, with people in the area look at data trends through time, um, and then also looking at human impacts on these freshwater resources, um, either through recreation, you know, what are recreation impacts or what is, what is our impact on how uh, these streams and rivers and lakes function. So how did you develop that um, project? Was this just like somebody had the technology and we need to put it to use, or did you kind of think of the problem and try and devise a way to just figure it out over time. Yeah, so it's kind of the first thing you said is that we had some equipment and we had uh, uh, some property on Northland College has some property on one of these lakes that we'll put a buoy on. So we'd like to utilize that system more. Uh, so that kind of prompted the buoy research and then sort of the my own internal questions and discussions with colleagues about visitor use impacts kind of generated the the leads into that second part so a little bit of both nice do you have a hypothesis yeah. or what what do you think is going to ultimately result from the start of this project and do you kind of have any sense of you know where you're going to take it in the future yeah yeah so what's interesting about these lakes here is that they are a little bit um stained with organic carbon so those are like brown water systems, right? So if you ever see a, a lake that is brown water, but kind of clear, um, that's dissolved organic carbon. So I'm not talking about like the chocolate milk you might see because there's a lot of sediment or dirt in the water, but rather the, the clear but brown water, kind of like tea, right? Mm. Um, so a lot of the lakes here have that dark staining because there's a lot of wetlands in the watershed around the lakes. And those wetlands are leaching out a lot of this, um, this carbon material. And so what's really fascinating about these systems is that they don't have a lot of algae because light's not going very deep in brownish water. So there's not a lot of algae. And of course, algae are the base of the food web. So whatever algae you do have kind of dictates 
how many, uh, you know, zooplankton, small invertebrates you'd have, which then dictates your, your um, sort of forage fish and then dictates your game fish. Um, and so what I'm really fascinated about is how these systems are going to change with climate change and, you know, over the next 5, 10, 15 years. These are pretty sensitive systems so that a little bit more of this a little bit more runoff from the landscape. Like if we get more summer precipitation, for instance, uh, could make the waters browner. <laughs> and there's a whole body of literature on lake browning um, as a verb, the browning of lakes. And what that could do is it could sort of pinch the zone of the lake where algae are able to survive because now maybe light is penetrating even less. And what are the ripple effects that's going to have um, you know, we don't know, but what, uh, what effects would that have up the food chain? Uh, also, these lakes are pretty close to neutral, but these uh, dissolved components that are running off the landscape, especially from wetlands, are a little bit acidic. Mm. And so these lakes are kind of at a tipping point that if they, if they do get a lot more inputs of the carbon, they could become more acidic and then if they're highly acidic then that could totally change the food web as well so um they're they're pristine systems but highly vulnerable so one and thing so, you mentioned there we kind of touched on it earlier a little bit but you talked about the algae in the stream or in the lake and we talked mm -hmm. earlier about the algae in the stream yep um is that something that people should be looking at and, and trying to evaluate like what algae is there and does that specific species of algae indicate something about the water system that we're, we're looking at? Um, I think with algae, it's more quantity, right? I'm thinking about it in terms of quantity. It's such a diverse community often. The one group of algae that may be of concern or interest would be the cyanobacteria or blue-green algae. They can lead to the harmful algal blooms, which have been um, the acronym for harmful algal blooms is HABS, H-A-B-S. Um, so there have been three blue-green algal blooms in Lake Superior in the last decade on the South Shore, right near where we are in Ashland, Wisconsin. And those have never been seen before in Lake Superior, which is of the five Laurentian Great Lakes, the biggest, the cleanest, the coldest, and yet we're seeing algal blooms here. You often hear algal blooms associated with Lake Erie, uh, but that's because it's, a, it's one of the shallowest of the Great Lakes. It, the Western Basin can really warm up because that's really shallow. Um, and it's getting a lot of phosphorus from the, the agriculture in northeast indiana and northwest ohio so uh so that's really unique right these lakes there's there's a whole body of literature out there that discuss lakes as sentinels of climate change right so lakes are collect a lot of information from the watershed literally right that streams and rivers are running into them trees are dropping their leaves um into them so they're kind of this mixing pot of the landscape. Um, and then they're also impacted by climate, right? So how long is the ice staying on these lakes into the spring uh, versus when does the ice set up in the fall and ice off and ice on 
is is those those dates are really changing. There's some hundred year records taken by you know citizen scientists, just people who who live on these lakes and generations of the same family might you know note when when they couldn't cross it anymore or when they could walk across it in the fall, you know, because it was iced over. Um, so yeah, I think lakes are really important to study. They're really dynamic, but they can also provide, you know, sort of these early warnings as to what's happening both ecologically, but also more broadly, um, nice. you know, because we as humans use these for a lot, you know, including sustenance, water, et cetera. Absolutely. I know that, um, some people have talked about how the decline in prairie has resulted in higher phosphorus levels in uh, the streams mm -hmm. because of leaf litter, because the prairies historically would line stream banks, for example, or, or mm -hmm. the general area around you know streams, and then they would collect all that leaf litter. The leaf litter would degrade and be absorbed into the grass or for mm -hmm. system. But now that we've lost our prairies or majority of them, um, a lot of that leaf litter is getting washed into our streams, which is raising phosphorus levels mm. as well. Are you, are you seeing anything like, like that? Or um, have you looked into anything like that? They're doing a lot of those studies um, and especially in more populous areas like in Madison where there's a couple lakes and also just a much larger city. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, you know, we have modified our landscape. So things do enter these water bodies more quickly. And, and that's a great example. Yeah. So I know that, you know, a lot of people that are probably listening to this podcast, you know, they're not, not everybody has a backyard stream or, or a lake up the street that they can go to and recreate at. And so mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on what the average person could do to impact their community in a water related way that, doesn't require property ownership or anything along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'd go back to the watershed concept and idea, right? We all live in a watershed, um, even if there isn't one, you know, in sight of where we live or even, you know, in sight of what you think, uh, because oftentimes, especially in more urban areas, those water bodies are put in sewers and put underground in urban areas like Milwaukee or Chicago, big urban areas. Um, so, I would encourage people to, to just find out where you live, find out what watershed you're in, where is the nearest stream, where does that flow? You know, you've done some good homework on that, Sam, and found out that you're connected to the Mississippi and therefore the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and, and then find out what information exists on it, right? Uh, every state DNR is required to report to the EPA um, what the quality of the state's waters are. So every state is monitoring a lot of water within the state, not every water body, of course, but many. So there's, there's a likelihood that a stream near you has been measured. Uh, this is required every two years. It's called the 303D list. So you can Google 303D Missouri, 303D Wisconsin. Um, and find out what streams or rivers are in good condition or have some sort of impairments. And then it'll list what those impairments are. Um, so I think finding out, you know, where, where are you? What watershed are you in? Um, what is the general report card for your state, which you can find on that 303D list. Um, and then find out what you can do to, to maybe put your nearby stream or river on some sort of public map, right? There's a lot of citizen science 
uh, monitoring programs. Um, the Isaac Walton League, uh, which is a national nonprofit, they do a lot of stream sampling and uh, can provide like a stream water quality testing kit. Um, so you can start to take part, start to look at how the water bodies around you are changing um, either, you know, week to week or month to month, season to season. Uh, streams are really dynamic and they're, they're just telling sort of this unfolding story as they flow downstream. So um, I would encourage people just to get out and become aware of the water resources in your area. And then finally, you know, think about what's happening to those water resources, right? Um, every time a new development is proposed for a city or municipality, there's often a public comment period. Is that going to impact the wetland or is that going to uh, have some sort of higher discharge amount? What's going to be in that discharge? You know, so what is this potential development going to be putting back into the stream? Um, and just kind of raise your awareness of the water in your, in your local area. And if you can do something for your local area, you're also benefiting those people downstream too, right? So um, I think that's a really big win and something we can all get behind. So you mentioned the citizen science uh, portion of it. And in our last episode, we talked about people going out and using plant identification apps and, you know, mm. learning about plants. And it's like, oh, I figured out that I have this wildflower in my backyard. What is it? Yeah. What good or bad things does it have? Once you identify it, you can fit, you can Google it. You can look up all the different aspects of that plant. And so mm. what significance does citizen science have to water resources and how could somebody like me or an average listener of this podcast contribute to the local knowledge base in regards to water resources? Just providing a baseline of, of data on a local waterway, right? So again, if you, if you can get in touch with an organization, you know, maybe in a certain state, maybe DNR supports water quality testing, um, there was a program formerly in Iowa known as Iowa Water, um, and that was a citizen science-based program. Um, but maybe at the county level, um, there are hopefully opportunities uh, for people to get a water quality testing kit and then report the data. Um, and again, that's that can be really useful when things are being proposed or... Um, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to get uh, uh, funding to create a park or to plant trees, right? So there could be um, ways to leverage the data to see some actions along the stream, right? And streams are highly variable, which makes them both really exciting to study, but also kind of drives me crazy. So, you know, you can't just take one sample and say, oh, the stream is fine, or oh my gosh, the stream is really impaired, right? It's um, the quote that I really like by a, um, a Greek philosopher from thousands of years ago uh, said, no person steps into the same river twice for it is not the same river, nor, does it, nor is it the same person, right? Um, so that water is always flowing downstream. Um, we're always changing and learning new things. So um, yeah, I think streams and rivers are amazing to study as are lakes, of course, wetlands and other freshwater bodies. But um, I think just getting involved and in, in taking an active role in looking around at what's around you and how does that change seasonally? Yeah, absolutely. I Water is one of those things that, you know, you can't see, sometimes you can't always see what's good or bad. It's like plants, mm -hmm. oh, I can see an invasive species or things along that line. But when it comes to the 
water flowing in your canal or, or your stream or in the river yeah. uh, down the street, you know, by looking at it, you can't always tell what's wrong with it or if there's anything wrong with it. And, and, and conversely, just seeing clear water doesn't mean that the water is good. So, you know, there's so many different things that play into it. And it's certainly one of the more challenging natural resources, I think, to think about in the same conservation mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's always moving. Lakes are a little bit easier because they're staying in place, <laughs> but they're also receiving water from the watershed. Yeah. So for people that might be looking to uh, one day become uh, freshwater ecologists or hydrologists or just are interested in environmental science in any way, what do you think the future questions that these people should be asking or what answers should we be looking to find um, as, we, as we go forward? Trying to kind of project out, you know, 10, 15 years from now, what answers do we need to have or at least on the, be on the right track to finding so that we can make a really positive impact for future generations. Water recycling. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty straight and clear. Yeah. I mean, we just have to be better and, and um, you know, there's, so the, the concept of water recycling uh, is that again, most of the water that is treated for consumption is not consumed, but rather goes down our shower drains, our toilets, our, um, you know, garden hoses. Uh, and so, the idea behind water recycling is capturing that water, which, which is referred to as gray water. Um, most of that water is gray water. The water from your toilet is considered black water and needs to be treated, right? Because there are pathogens and bacteria and, and human waste that needs to be treated and addressed, but not so in laundry, uh, right. the water from laundry or the water from your dishwasher. So, you know, how can we reuse that gray water? Maybe that's what we use to, water our lawns. Um, at a bigger scale, at like a municipal scale, um, all, those, all those water treatment facilities could pipe water back from the sewage treatment to the water treatment and treat the water to the same quality as what originally came out of your tap. And I think that's a really important thing. This is done on the International Space Station this is done in some countries like Namibia, which is in uh, Southwest Africa um, around the Kalahari Desert. So they don't have a lot of water. The capital Windhoek um, does recycle water. Um, there are some cities in the US, especially in Texas, California, Florida, um, that are doing this already. Uh, often they're blending just a little bit or none at all though uh, with the city water. So taking the sewage treatment water, treating it, treating it again. Um, and I, I think that's really an important aspect of the future. Um, and that could really ease a lot of the water stress that we're seeing in, in parts of the country and world where there's a lot of people, but there's not a lot of water. So uh, I think the biggest hurdle there is the ick factor, right? Would you drink a glass of water from the tap that you knew was also your city's sewage at one point. Yeah. Um, the treatment process is still the same. So it will have, it will be of the same quality as what you originally drank. Right. And in a way, all water is recycled, right? Like 
um, you know, what I used to tell fifth graders when I worked environmental education is like, you're drinking dinosaur pee. I was going to say, I think we Um, talked about that in freshman geology class. Exactly. You know, all the water that's on earth has been here and just cycling through everything, you know? So, so the chances that the water you drink today were, you know, who's a famous Missourian from a hundred years ago, right? Chances are they might've drank it too, right? Yeah. George Washington. We, we, we probably all, all right. drank some of George Washington's water from back in the day. Yeah, potentially. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's an incredible story too, right? You think of all the molecules of water you drink in a day and think of all the amazing journeys they have had. Oh, absolutely. And you know, yeah. this is a podcast for another day, but when we were talking earlier about the desalinization of the oceans, it's like mm. once that process, if it ever becomes energy efficient to, to do that, you know, does that change our relationship with fresh water in the sense that we become like, you're talking about recycling and how that's a crucial, you know, forward progress we need to make. But if we desalinize in an energy efficient way before the recycling issue is solved, does that change the direction that we take with, with the recycling? Because then we won't need to recycle anymore because we can just suck it out from the ocean. Um, which worries me a little bit because mm-hmm. what happens once the ocean level starts going down because we start pouring water into these freshwater lakes, for example, that may or may not ever end up in the ocean if, you know, for whatever reason. So there's a lot to think about, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And with desal too, one of the hiccups is that for every, you know, gallon of fresh water you get, you get a gallon of water that is twice as salty as the ocean. So you've taken the salt from one and put it in the other. So what we could do over time with desalinization, it's not just energy efficiency, but we could be killing the ocean. Um, you know, if we were to take for every gallon, again, we're putting more than water are, by the way. twice as salty. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so, so that's another hiccup with desalinization that, and that's why recycling water is like more the way that is likely, uh, more of the way of the future than desalinization, right? We already have that technology and there are cities, I think Tampa, Tampa, Florida has one of the biggest desalinization plants in the U S but, but it's really expensive and you've got sort of this waste product of really, really salty water. Do they just pour it back into the ocean or? I'm not sure, but um, you know, to, to a certain extent, it'll get diluted, right? But if every major city was doing it, you yeah. know, you're really going to have a localized effect, right? Like right. what does that do to the immediate surroundings to Tampa if they have a really high volume? Are they going to, you know, kill the fish and or whatnot? So I'm, I'm not sure how Tampa deals with it, but it could have a really negative local impact if it's at a high volume. Sure. Yeah. Well, do you have any closing thoughts? I know we're getting close to time here, so I just wanted to get your yeah. kind of like last thoughts. Like, do you have anything uh, to tell everybody or things that we haven't touched on that would be key for us to look into in the future or continue to do further research on as we go forward? Gosh, I think um, find out where your drinking water comes from, right? Similar to, you know, what watershed do you live in? You know, where does your drinking water come from? where is the source of that water, right? Um, we talk a lot about source protection. Um, you, you drive around on some interstates and some states, and it says like now entering a watershed protection area, right? So there are 
certain areas that are trying to highlight where source water is coming from. I think that's a really important thing just to, to have the knowledge of. Um, yeah, so um, just being informed and, and understanding that consequences, there are consequences for our water based on how we treat the land. Um, and uh, and that, that's really important, especially for future generations. You know, with as much water as we consume in a day, whatever is in that water will get into us. Um, there are a lot, you know, one other field of study that's rapidly expanding is pharmaceuticals, personal care products, emerging contaminants. That's kind of the buzzword is emerging contaminants. So there are things that we use in industrial processes and in our daily lives that are not regulated by EPA. Um, the one that's getting a lot of headlines now is PFAS, which is uh, in a lot of fire retardants. Um, it's also known as a forever chemical, so it does not degrade. Uh, so there are a lot of things that might be in our water, depending where you live, that might not be good for us, but there's no, not enough research. There's not enough regulation on it yet. Um, and that regulatory process is like a decade long, typically for a single chemical. Yeah. So, uh, so that's something else to just be aware of, right? There are, um, there are typically high, uh, state hygienic labs in every state. So I know that Iowa had one, uh, Wisconsin has one. So there are places you can send a water sample to from your own personal tap. Um, I would encourage everyone who drinks off of well water to absolutely do that, um, possibly as much as once a year. Uh, the tests, it's usually $20 for one thing. Like if you wanna know how much lead is in my water, it's 20 bucks. Sometimes you can get a suite of measurements for say $100. Um, and that is a cost, but um, you know, there's a cost to, uh, you know, personal cost to, to drinking water that might have stuff in it too. So um, yeah, I think just being informed and understanding the, the crucial role that water has in our daily lives and, you know, our daily livelihoods. Absolutely. Do you think water is going to be one of those things we look back on in 50 years and, and see all of the different ways we treat it now and go, darn, we should have done it differently. <laughs> I would not be surprised. You know, I mean, we're already doing that, right? Rivers, would catch on fire before the clean water act. So at least that's not happening, but True. yeah, exactly. What are we doing now that we just are hitting our head, you know, we'll be hitting our heads against the wall in the future. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with me. I think we made a lot of ground, but it's certainly have a lot more we could have covered. Uh, so we'll probably have to do this again. Yeah, no, absolutely, Sam. Thanks for thanks for the opportunity. And for those of you that were listening, thanks for listening. And uh, Sam knows how to get a hold of me if you have any follow-up questions. All right, and that wraps up episode three of the Living Lands podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or want to reach out, our contact information and Peter's contact information will be in the description below. Thanks and have a great rest of your day.